Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Today, David Bland is back. David, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, David and I used to work together a long, long time ago at a company called Big Visible, but he's gone on to much grander and greater things. Um, he's got a book, Testing Business Ideas, which is two years. It's been out now, right? Correct. Yeah, two years. Um, so what have you been up to? What kind of stuff are you doing? It's a lot of new um, business, either testing or like new product testing, new feature testing, new service testing. It, it seems I seem to be pulled to the new of, wow, we have a lot of uncertainty here. We're not sure how to address it. And so a lot of the things from my book and what I do in my everyday coaching and workshops is around how do you like structure your risk and look at it and then how do you go test? And so it's a lot of uh, helping people deal with a lot of uncertainty is <laughs> essentially what I'm doing. Okay, cool. For those of you listening, I reached out to David because he, he sent out his company, Precoil, sent out an email about something he's working on. And it really struck something for me because it's something that I've been trying to improve on in my product owner class. So we're going to talk about assumptions today and assumption mapping. Um, so how, when you're talking to people that are new to this stuff, how do you explain why assumptions are so important to, fig- to discover and, and like why we need to be spending time on them. Yeah, I, I think there's just something endearing about folks where we feel like, oh, we know the answer, or uh, there's like this reality distortion field around us where we feel like, well, of course, this will work out. And, and people tell me I'm crazy now, but they told, you know, like Steve Jobs, he was crazy, and Elon Musk, he was crazy, and, 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 and it'll work out for me. And, and I think what I've seen over time is it uh, quite often just doesn't work out. You know, we jump to the things we feel comfortable with, and so if I'm working with like somebody that's technical, they, they want to just play in code and play in the technology, but there could be this other large thing if proven wrong, it doesn't matter how much technology you have, it's going to fail. And it's vice versa. Like if I work with somebody in sales and, and they love selling, but they're not addressing any of the, the feasibility risk of doing it, right, then it could still fail in a big way. So it, it's not about like ignoring the things that are hard to do. It, it's about kind of having a really structured conversation about them and making sure that you're addressing them earlier on just to see if you're even in the right direction. And so I think if we skip over that part and we just build and launch and see what happens, like you look brilliant if you get it right, but so many of us get it wrong. And so I'm just trying to pull people back a bit and try to help them test along the way. Okay. So one of the things that I always talk about in the class is if, if I'm working with product owners, you know, they've all got executives they report to, and most of those executives have something in, in their mind that's telling them they're the second coming of Steve Jobs, and they're the one that doesn't need to, like, they know. Everybody else doesn't know, like you just said, but, the, but these people know, and so the product owners are executing on it, and I always explain it like the product owner's job is to protect the company from itself, or whoever it is is saying, I know this to be true. You know, I think it's really just unpacking things that maybe they're they're worried about, but they're not necessarily verbalizing. Okay. Yeah. So so when you think about it, it's usually have this nagging feeling in the back of your head when you're working on something or you're looking at a roadmap. It's like, mm, man, I, I don't I don't really know if this is <laughs> this is going to work. And, and so what I try to do, you know, uh, is unpack that stuff and and do it in a very structured way in a very like. I don't know, like my NPR for innovation voice kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> We're just looking at it for an outside observer. Hey, what if we did, what if we kind of tease this apart? What's going to happen? And and so I have kind of a style about me that that sends, seems to work with this. And so when people say, 
well, I know that. And I was like, oh, okay, so, so what kind of evidence do we have supporting that? Like quantitative, qualitative, observable evidence that's recent that supports this statement. Well, I, I, I don't have any. I just feel it in my gut. Oh, okay. Well, can we go check? You know, like what can we do to generate some evidence around that? You know, so I, I just kind of start teasing it apart because I want to know, is there any observable evidence to support this thing that we're about to do? And if there isn't any, we're placing a really big bet. And if we get it wrong, it might not be something we recover from. So rather than just standing there and screaming based on what at them over and over again, you're kind of speaking to them in the business yoga voice and coaxing them into answering those questions. Yeah. And, and I think uh, the words I use have changed over the years. So if I'm dealing with executives, uh, I speak much more about investment decisions and reducing risk. And okay. there, there haven't too many executives I've met that were like, that didn't resonate with, right? Like they want to spend money wisely and they, they don't want to do really risky things that lose a bunch of money usually. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to help them through that. So it's like, how do we de-risk this? How do we make better investment decisions? We give ourselves permission to invest more in this over time based on, you know, having evidence. And so I don't really talk a lot about hypotheses and experiments, even though okay. that's what it leads to. I try to use words that they at least feel more comfortable with. And this is like not the direction I was going to go with this interview, but how did you figure out how to do that? Because I, I mean, there's so many people that don't know how to do that. Well, I mean, uh, I, unfortunately, like the hard way, right? So, you know, I, I don't want people feeling as if I'm more excited about a framework or more excited about my book than I am about helping them and helping okay. them make progress. And so even if it, it is tough for me, right? Because the book, Testing Business Ideas, has 44 different experiments in the book. It makes up over 200 pages of the book. Right. The book's like almost 400 pages long. And obviously people just want to jump to experiments. And they think that's the goal. The goal is just to run experiments, but that's not the goal. The goal is to de-risk what you're working on and whether it's a roadmap or a backlog and, and, and make better bets, you know, place better bets. And so it's hard for me because I'm always like, well, yeah, I wrote a book full of experiments, but it's not about the experiments. <laughs> it's yeah. really about reducing the risk. And, and people kind of, I think, respond well to that because they realize I'm not trying to push a bunch of experiments on there. I'm trying to help them reduce a risk in a thing, whether it's a backlog or a roadmap or, or what they're doing. Am I correct in assuming that you often have to talk them away from running into the experiments because it's just like, that's something they can do right now that'll make them feel like they're achieving something? Yeah, it's, you know, we always talk about outputs and outcomes yeah. and, you know, running experiments. You can run a lot of experiments and seem very, very busy, you know, uh, way back, you know, back at Big Visible when we were working together, you know, one of the big clients I was working with out here in San Francisco, um, that everyone looked really busy because they're running experiments. And where I landed on creating this two by two called assumptions mapping, which I learned from other folks like Jeff, Josh, uh, Jeff uh, Gothelf and Josh Seiden and other folks pulling inspiration from and in design thinking. Um, I landed on that because, you know, executives aren't excited about experiments, right? They're, they're excited about like <laughs> moving the needle on something. Right. And, and, and so the experiments kind of fall into that old agile trap, right? Of like, oh, we're completing stories. So we must be making progress. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're completing things, but are we really paying down the risk? And so assumptions mapping is kind of one of these things that we're just kind of born out of, wow, we, I can't give the illusion of product of progress by just running a bunch of experiments with these teams. Like I have to help them really pay down their risk. And that really challenged me to like revisit how I was approaching things. Okay. So I'm curious about one thing. Do you, when you're working with people on this, is it more important for you to fall in love with their problem or fall in love with helping them with their problem, like helping them figure out their problem? It's more more the helping them figure out because um, 
there, there are certain industries I, I don't really do business with, but for the most part, I, I do in like a lot of different industries, right? So from automotive to consumer packaged goods to software, like I don't really stick in one specific industry. And so I see lots of different problems, but okay. in the framing of the problem, and then, you know, people always say, well, our biggest risk is customers will buy it. And, and so that's fair. But what I have to do then is facilitate something with them, usually something like assumptions mapping, to get them to tease that apart. What kind of customers? Who are your early okay. adopters? Um, what jobs, pains, and gains are you looking for to solve or create, you know, gains for them with? Um, how do you, you know, how do you segment what you're doing? Like how much, how much will they pay initially? Is it recurring? Is it one time? Like I start teasing apart this, this overarching fear they have, which is customers. I don't know if customers will buy it to, well, let's break that apart to what kind of customers and how much and what's it look like. And, and so it, it becomes something they can test. Whereas this overarching fear that feels like it's weighing them down. They the question they, they don't, don't feel actually like they're paralyzed. Ask. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm imagining, I want to talk about what assumption mapping is in a second, but just one more question on this. Um, I'm guessing that after having done it so many times, you can probably see the problems pretty quick or what appear to be the problems pretty quick, right? I've noticed some patterns over time, right? Because I've been doing this for a while now. And so I I can see also really early on if someone's coachable or do they want help? Like, I don't want to inflict help. (laughs) <laughs> inflict help on people. That's not my goal. Okay. So, you know, when, when they're explaining everything away, um, when they feel like there's, they don't need to test because they're so confident, like there's all these biases they can check off, right? There's confirmation bias. Yeah. There's overconfidence bias. There's experimenters bias. There's like, there's always biases that I can start to see a little more clearly now and not just see them, but give recommendations on how to address. And you can't eliminate them. But for example, you know, if I'm working, I do a lot of work with big companies, right? And if I see some product person off in the corner doing all the sorting themselves and everything, you know, what I recommend is, hey, let's do this with more than just yourself, like bring in some other perspectives because those biases creep in when you are alone. You know, if a customer said stuff you didn't like really want to hear, yeah, you just don't include it and there's no one else there, <laughs> you know? So having, you know, there are a couple of things I do. I, I try to have people do things not just by themselves. And then I also try to have them set the bar at least relatively high in their experimentation. So they're not setting the bar so low that they just check the box and go, yep, ran experiment. Now let's go build whatever we wanted to build. Cause that okay. kind of behavior doesn't drive real change inside companies. It, it, it's just more of a, well, this is another hurdle you put in front of me. I'm going to run that experiment, check the box. Yep. Run, ran experiment. And then I'll go off and build that thing. Anyway, I'm trying to really help change their mindset. And it's, it's a lot of, you know, coaching and workshops and a lot of, a lot of work over time. Yeah. So if they, and if they find a partner, that partner's job is not just to help with the creativity part, but also to, to basically act as their minder, right. From protect them from the biases that they might not see. Yeah. Like a good specific example, I was working with a large retail company and we were um, sorting a bunch of interview feedback. So we intercepted people in stores. We did 15 to 20 interviews. Uh, vaguely, if I remember correctly, and, and we took great notes and we came back and we started writing them on post-its, right? And so in the past, what would have happened there is like one person goes off, writes all the stuff on post-its and like, uh, it's like a beautiful mind or something on the walls, yeah. right? They just like put a bunch of sticky Murder notes up and, right. and they do everything themselves, but it takes a little longer 
but like we did it as a team, right? And so when we were creating these themes of what we were hearing from customers, it just wasn't taking the word. It, it wasn't translating it all through one person. It was the group going, oh, but I think they were saying this here and this matches this over here. And so it was, yeah, it's trickier to facilitate, but I'm not putting it all in one person. And then the stuff they didn't like to hear, they just don't include. So just, okay. just simple things like that make a difference, I feel. Okay. So I know you've got an exercise on assumptions mapping in the book, um, and I don't want to like give all that away because hopefully they'll go check out the book, but could you talk briefly about what it is and, and, and what people get out of it? Yeah. It, like I said, it's really born out of um, trying to get people focused and not just people in big companies, but also entrepreneurs and, and, and other folks. So really what it's about is kind of a structured conversation about risk and it's evolved over time. So it's basically a two by two. Uh, it's now used by like Google and a bunch of other companies around the world because they put it out there under Creative Commons. But really, it kind of facilitates this conversation where you can narrow in on the things that um, like Eric Ries would call a leap of faith assumption, right? You want to okay. get to the stuff where it's it's really important. It has to be true for us to succeed. And we have no evidence to support the statement. And, and so over the years, I've changed it quite a bit. I mean, I think the labels have changed at least twice. Um, okay. I started with, um, well, the important and unimportant have been pretty, pretty stable, but I, I started with like known and unknown. And if you Google assumptions mapping, you'll see older videos I've created and everything around that. And it worked okay. But then I would get executives and really strong personalities that would say, why well, just no? And then, so I changed it to certain and uncertain. And then uh, I'm like, I'm just certain. I was like, well, how are you certain? Well, I just know. <laughs> I was like, this is not getting. So Alex Osterwalder, my co-author, um, very famous author, he, he wrote business model and generation and value prop design and a lot of canvases you see. He kind of started the whole canvas movement, I would say, in, in, in business and in industry. And we were whiteboarding at, um, in, in Stan at Stanford University at the library because he, he had flown into California for something and we were we were meeting up and and he's like we should probably just do have evidence and no evidence and I was like oh I don't know I don't know if I want to change it again you know and but it's not working and, and so he finally kind of won me over I felt like it, the conversation went both ways I won him over in the sense of if you read value prop design and those books you know there's a lot of stack ranking going on right it's like yeah. you write down your assumptions you just stack rank them and go off and I felt like there was some there was a conversation missing in that stack ranking. And I feel like when you do a two by two, you're really challenged to say, okay, how important is this? And then how much evidence do I have to, you know, to support it? And so, um, it took a lot to win him over, but with the first time he facilitated, he loved it. Like he did it with a client in New York. Um, he said, uh, it was like the clueless corner is what the client called it, which was the stuff in the top right was the stuff they were clueless about. So they should go experiment on. And the top and, right, just so the folks who, who maybe aren't familiar with it, that's stuff that's important and that you have no ability to prove. Yeah. Or, or just like you don't have any recent evidence to prove. So there's nothing okay. observable, either qualitative or quantitative that supports the statement that you, that you wrote down. And so that's the stuff that, you know, I'm looking for uh, when I'm, when I'm working with teams. So basically uh, he kind of won me over on the labels and I kind of won him over on the two by two and the way uh, teams use it, uh, it kind of plugs in different ways. So that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, you can plug it into like a canvas. So for example, if you have like a business model canvas, you can do a two by two and then go run your experiments. You can look at your backlog, you know, if you have a backlog and sure. you can start saying, what are the things that are desirable, viable, feasible here in the backlog? And I've done that with like some bigger agile teams. Um, 
you you can uh, look at your roadmap and you can say, okay, out of this roadmap, like what are the things that we're assuming here with desirable, viable, feasible? And, and, and so it kind of plugs in, but basically regardless of the kind of the process you're using, it's it just like this one like specific thing you can do to narrow in on risk that could help you kind of focus. And I feel like sometimes we just don't give teams the space to do that. And we just kind of take it as, okay, well, someone else has figured that out. And in reality, no one else figured it out. <laughs> we just threw yeah. it in there. It sounded good. And then people are building sprints worth of work on it. Well, so that that's, a, I think, an important question. Like, who would be working on this? Would it be like the, the, develop, the scrum team or would it be the stakeholder with the product owner or like at what level does this happen? So uh, what I've seen work the best, and, and it's not myself, just me, um, if you think of Jeff Patton and Teresa Torres and other folks around, kind of they call it the triad or the trio or whatever you want to call them, but this idea of design leadership and um, product leadership and engineering leadership or technology leadership. And so you would at least want those folks in the room. It could be okay. more than them, but you, you would want the, well, basically a well-balanced team to um to do this exercise because what happens is we're going through desirability risk so desirability risk is a lot around your value proposition and your customer um what job you're trying to do for them what kind of pain you're trying to solve what kind of gain you're trying to create for them viability risk is usually around like cost and revenue or whatever you're trying to move the needle on so even if you don't charge for it you're trying to make some kind of business impact okay. and then feasibility risk is a lot of the execution and a lot of that's technology, but sometimes it can be regulatory. Sometimes it can be governance. It could be uh, policy or something like there are other things other than does the tech work. Uh, like if you're in financial services or healthcare, you want to make sure like you're not violating HIPAA compliance. Or like that. Yeah. So sometimes we pull in legal. And, and so, but basically what you want uh, in, in the way I do it anyway, is if you think of those three themes, desirable, viable, feasible, you need folks in the room that can speak to those okay. assumptions. And so, if you skew too heavily towards one, what will happen is you come a very skewed idea of risk when you come out of that. It's like, oh, the biggest thing we need to learn about is this, but maybe you didn't have anybody from technology in the room and you completely ignored the fact you can't build any of it. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah. having a balanced team, I feel, um, makes it a much more fruitful exercise. Okay. So in the, in the book, you do actually list it as first you prioritize desirability, then feasibility, then viability. Are they in, in that order on purpose or that, I mean, like, is that intentional or they're just, they're just listed that way? That, that's one flow. Um, okay. The reason that we came to that flow um, uh, with my co-author, Alex, is for uh, the reason we landed on that flow for the book was that if you get the customer wrong, it, it's really tough. You know, if you're building something that nobody wants, it's hard to recover from that. Okay. And so we tend to prioritize desirability first. Okay. Um, actually, Alex and I are pretty aligned on this. I, I'm, I'm more open to whether you do feasibility next or viability next, because basically, depending on your business, it can move around. So feasibility is more like, can you execute it all? And, and a lot of people talk all day about that stuff, but ideally, you'd want to address that too. And then viability is more about, you know, can you move the needle? Is this a viable thing to do financially? And so... Um, it kind of, those are two more interchangeable, but I almost always start with desirability because okay. uh, if you get that wrong, it's, it's really, and so feasibility would be like, if it was a technology product, is the technology possible? That would be feasibility, right? Yeah. So I've worked on projects before where, uh, literally it wasn't feasible. <laughs> it doesn't happen yeah. very often, but I've worked on technology projects where we were trying to do 
like some cutting edge thing and actually the web standards didn't support it. And so we ended up not going forward because um, it'd have to be a new web standard to actually work. And, and so feasibility does come up, but usually it's not the biggest riskiest thing. You know, I work with a bunch of companies can do almost anything. The okay. most of their risk is on desirability and viability. Okay. I, the reason I was asking is because when I, when I do the exercises in class, I have the students come up with products and I think like every third class, this one product is something that's basically going to tell you what's in your pantry, when it's going to expire, when you need to use it, what else you need to make certain foods. And there's no way to technically figure out what's in your pantry or how much of it's left or when it expires right now. So that, that to me is like, everybody would love that, but we can't do it. Um, yeah. I think, um, maybe fully autonomous cars, depending on who you ask, like what level yeah. you're looking at. That, that's one too, that comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, so that does come up, but I think I, I would say overall, just from working with a bunch of teams is desirability is the big thing. desirability and especially viability. I, I mean, they're very intertwined. It's not like you can separate them completely, but if okay. the market doesn't want it or it's not big enough to sustain, then it doesn't kind of matter if you can do it or not. It doesn't matter if you can build it or not. And I think that's where we see a lot of the, the bigger failures. You know, it's not that they couldn't build the thing. It was more that nobody wanted the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sustain. So would you suggest that people like sit down and create like a separate backlog just of assumptions? I mean, if you, do people do that or is it just sitting around talking about it and filling out this canvas gives them an idea of how to prioritize their backlog? It, it's more of, it's kind of a mix. So what okay. I tend to see is looking at your backlog and then having a structured conversation around what kind of risks do you have? And then when you end up with stuff that is really important where you have no evidence to support, and, and this is stuff that, you know, you're, it's in your roadmap and everything, and you're trying to deliver on this. It's being able to take that and generate experiments and use that to be part of the work in your backlog. So okay. I wouldn't know that you would need like a specific, like I don't think of a backlog as of assumptions. Typically it's usually a two by two or a map or something that is a living document that we can come back to. Okay. Because if you learned about it, it should change position on the map, right? So if you learned about a lot of that stuff in the top right, it should start moving left. You know, it should start being like me on that. We start to have evidence, right? Over time, especially if you ran multiple experiments over several sprints. Yeah. But what I love to see, uh, and when I think it's working the best is when, let's say you had a giant like agile implementation and, and you're doing this, it's kind of like feeding in like epics and things like that. And you do this two by two, it should generate experiments that become part of the work. Like if you think discovery delivery, this would be some of the discovery work that you would do to inform the delivery. Okay. So these might, they might become sprint goals then. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, like if you visualized, let's say, swim lanes. Um, yeah. I mean, well, not of us, a lot of us are in person before um, right now, but if you literally had a wall around. Right Back in, in the day. Story, yeah. Um, but you can do it also in, in you know, online software. But if, if you have your delivery work visualized, right, you should also visualize your discovery work. And so that becomes part of like your daily standups. And when you're having, you know, your sprint reviews, you're talking about some of the discovery work that and help them inform delivery work. Right. And so it, it's, it's not necessarily super, um, segregated that way. Like I feel like sometimes you, you don't want to create a scenario where you have like the select elite few doing the discovery and throwing it over the wall. Uh, what I try to promote is 
doesn't mean that everyone has to do this kind of work, but usually everybody's worried about something. And so giving them a space to voice that yeah. in a constructive way and then generate work that help address those concerns, I find is um, kind of like what we would assume would come like modern agile, right? Like as we evolve agile, it's not just about delivering. It's, it's also about discovering what you need to deliver. So this just gave me an idea. I want to check in with you on. I, when I've, whenever I'm with scrum teams, I still run a tradition, traditional risk management meeting every week and have a risk register. And the only reason I have it, it's not because we actually use it for anything other than I need a place for executives to come vomit their fear up so that I can capture it and say, look, you can stop worrying about this now. It's right here. This would serve the same kind of purpose if I could engage them periodically, we capture whatever their wor- risks they're worried about, figure out where it goes on the board, and then let that drive experiments that the teams would take action on. Yeah, or even having them provide feedback on some that are created. You know, I do that sometimes with teams where we work through it, you know, design leadership, tech leadership, product leadership. Okay. Uh, but but if we need the stakeholders to provide feedback on it, we, we just kind of walk them through it, right? So we have our two by two and we're like, okay, here's what we we're thinking. And here's what we thought like had to be true, but we don't have evidence to support. And, and what I find even with that dynamic, as long as you coach them up and they know what to, what they're getting into, right? Yeah. So if they're walking into something and you prep them, which I've learned over the years is, is helpful, <laughs> like what kind of questions to ask, what they're going to see then I find executives often shine in that situation because they could say, oh, well, actually, there's another team working on that, so I should connect you with them. Or, oh, what about about this? Or, oh, though that's right, that is the risk. Like, I find they can be really productive conversations about risk that otherwise, you know, may not may not happen. And I would imagine if you if you approach it from the perspective of we're talking about risk, then it's less it's it's probably easier for them to digest that this is something they need to be involved in because they're used to talking about risk all the time anyway. Exactly. And then also how much funding you throw at things. So I, I push it a little further than this because you know, when in my work, especially slated to more the new product development, new business development work, right. what I often do is tie the stuff into like funding decisions, right? So it's called metered funding or internal VC funding. It's got a lot of different names, but basically in that meeting, you know, the executives are not only giving feedback, but they're also scoring this and saying, Oh, should we even invest in this for the next three to six months? And so you can tie it to funding that way as well. Um, There are some companies doing pretty well at it, um, but it's still, we're still early stages, but it's pretty much like evidence-based innovation. I guess you could call it where they're placing bets down on evidence uh, and where the risk is and whether or not there's enough leading indicators to to go forward. And it's really interesting in bigger companies, almost always people get money for no evidence at all. So it's kind of changing the narrative a bit going, well, we could give them $100,000. I would imagine that's changing right now though, right? With the trial and everything. I think it's changing. I, I feel like um, Maybe it's because of the book. Maybe maybe it's just kind of raised my visibility a bit more. But I feel like I'm getting pulled into companies that are trying to do this more often now than okay. I would say ten years ago when Lean Startup started. Yeah, we were all trying to promote this stuff, and I felt like it was really early, and I didn't see as much real work going on behind the scenes. But ten years later, I mean, I'm I'm at least seeing promising signs, and, and in the big scheme of things, you know, we're still probably in the early adopter phase of all this stuff. So. Hopefully not early adopter agile, <laughs> but early adopter like other other things. So I feel like um, 
it, it's it's starting to happen more. At least the real work of it's gone through the hype cycle. Now we're really trying to yeah. apply it. I feel like we're in that part of the like hype cycle now. Okay. So I want to ask one more question about this. Um, when you were talking about working with clients and I asked if you're able to see, see stuff and you said you can see patterns. If you're talking about somebody who's doing metered funding and they need to get the thing scored a certain way to get the next batch of money so they can move on to whatever the next phase is. Like, how do you, whether you're working with a client trying to protect yourself from the assumptions that you're making, or you're coaching a client into catching their own assumptions and not trying to game their metered funding system. Like, do you have any suggestions for how to do that? Yeah, I, some of it's it's prep and, and repetition. I mean, with executives, I'm spending a lot of time with them to prep them about what the experience looks like, uh, what kind of questions to ask, um, what they're going to see. And then on the backstage, I'm also working, we're working with the teams to make sure that they understand what they're doing and getting beyond just doing interviews and surveys, which everybody does, but there's so many more things available you can do to generate evidence before just building the whole thing. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of prep work behind the scenes kind of that's going on. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can eliminate everything. I mean, you can't really eliminate all the biases, but I feel like let's say you run with it for 12 weeks and, and you are presenting your work, you should have ran multiple experiments over those 12 weeks. And so when you present like your assumptions map and then the experiments you ran, and here's the evidence that either supports this or doesn't, you know? So I see kind of three things usually come up. One is that you persevere, which is like, Hey, this evidence is actually really good. We just need more of it. We need maybe a couple more people on the team and a little bit more money. And, and uh, usually executives are pretty receptive to that. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll allocate more money to this. Another one is like a pivot, right? So basically it's like, well, this customer isn't, you know, this isn't the ideal customer for this, but we found this other customer that looks yeah. promising and we want to go that way. Um, and then the other is, is um, I, I still call it a kill, although I've seen people say park or punt or whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> uh, it depends on your culture. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's another one where it's like, we just celebrate, hey, we're not going to go forward with this one and nobody gets fired and we move on to, you know, something else. And, and so I find that tying it to funding decisions is interesting in the sense of they're looking at risk, you're looking at evidence and you're saying, okay, here's our goal and what we are trying to do. And does this support this or not? It, it kind of helps inform the conversation a bit where it's not just, Oh, we need 20 K to do blah, blah, blah. Like it, yeah. it's, it's more of a, like it's a better, healthier conversation. I feel it's a lot less romantic though. I mean, you're, you're, you're making it like a mature, sensible, <laughs> responsible decision as opposed to just give me the money and I will make lightning come from the sky. It's true. I feel a little bit like the pen and teller of innovation sometimes <laughs> <laughs> uh, where it's like, you know, this is how it really goes. And so it's not everyone's receptive to it. I have to say, like, not everybody is uh, coming along for the journey. There are some people that don't want this to be transparent and, and they want to know that they're they, like, they want to see big numbers and they want to see the magic and they don't want to like really know how it happened. And, and yeah. that's fair. I mean, some people work that way, but I think especially over the last couple of years and companies dealing with the pandemic and everything, they're really trying to be a little more, you know, I don't want to say conservative, but my, my, my fear was, yeah, like responsible. My fear was like everybody would stop testing any idea over the pandemic and that has not been the case. So I'm happy to see that. Yeah. But I, I think it's, it comes down to like, we're democratizing in a way we're saying, 
this isn't some kind of mystery superpower thing you're born with. Like you can actually learn how to do this. And what typically happens is people just do this all in their head and they don't tell you. So here's a, here's a way to think about it and here's a way to visualize it. And so I've had some people like write to me and say this, it's wrong what you're doing. <laughs> and they're not many, <laughs> but, uh, I don't, I don't agree with them. I feel like, you know, it doesn't need to be some big mystery. Uh, no mystery to working this way. It's just a lot of hard work and here's the thought process. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting journey over the last few years. Well, I mean, the people who are, who are denying it, they're still along for the ride anyway. They're just waiting for the bigger failure until they have to face the fact that, oh yeah, we actually could have figured that out before it happened. Yeah. And maybe that's, I mean, everyone's history and, and their career journey is, is unique. Right. But I feel like I, I experienced this really early on in my career, like going to startups out of college yeah. and I learned a lot of things the hard way. And I've worked on things nobody cared about and slept at my desk over the weekends to the detriment of my personal relationships. And I, I kind of learned that early on. It wasn't a, I went to a different kind of job and had all kinds of success and, and then failed like really big later in my career. I, I, you know, experienced it pretty early. So maybe that kind of biased me and how I approach work, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna fail in some way sooner or later. And I think like being able to, to deal with it and speak about it and structure it and feel like it's not the end of the world. I mean, this is there's a lot of work to be done. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that thing about the startups in the beginning. Some of the failures that I made into big failures in the beginning of my career, which were just horrible at the time, they've guided every decision that I've made since then. And I am so grateful that I learned some of those lessons that early because now I see other people like 20, 30 years later, still trying to figure that stuff out. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, what the hell? <laughs> like, it, they're a blessing, those failures. Yeah. And I, I don't think the goal is to fail. And I think there's some weird, I think we're getting past it in, in like in Silicon Valley and such, but there, there was this kind of um, like, oh, we're just going to fail. And we're going to fail fast. And, all that. and yeah, that's really not learn sort of fast. The, the, yeah. It's more about learning, but it's also putting that learning in action. And, and as much as I love Eric Ries and Lean Startup, you know, there are a lot of quotes around of like, oh, you just have to learn faster than everyone else. And, and that is true, but you also have to take that learning and put it in action. Cause like, that's, that's the key missing piece I find in a lot of these teams is that they're either not empowered to put it into action or they don't make that connection or they think, oh, that's someone else's job to put it into action. Right. But it's not just the learning part, you know? So I think we're moving the conversation beyond just fail fast. Now it's more about learn fast, but it, it's also putting that learning in action that needs to happen. And the, and the simple example of that would be anybody who's been in a postmortem or a project review or even a retrospective captured stuff and then put it in SharePoint and forgotten about it instead of doing something like that. Yeah. I mean, those were always the worst retrospectives for me where you just keep talking about either the stuff that stuff. never got addressed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a groundhog day, right? Um, so ideally, you know, it, it, there's something kind of action that, that's being driven. No, it doesn't mean you can control it all, of course, but there, there's like some things you can influence. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel that, you know, for, for those of you listening, they're like project managers or an agile, right? Having, I don't want to say it's, it's like just new frameworks, but having ways to communicate down, right. Uh, of, of, how to manage risk and it's giving you some options like assumptions mapping and such, and then being able to communicate up to, okay, here's how we're de-risking something and here's how we can make better decisions on our future, like on these roadmap and this backlog. I do think there's something to be said about the tools being helpful in, in that way. It's not really about the tool, but it's about the conversation. It's about being able to communicate up and down. Yeah. Just using the tool as a way of having that, starting that conversation and sparking all those ideas. 
Um, this was great, man. I really appreciate you making time for this. I know you're super busy. Um, for those of you listening, I'm going to include a link to, to David's book, Testing Business Ideas, uh, in the show notes, as well as Precoil is the company. Um, so I'll include a link to that. Is there anything you want to talk about you got coming up? Any special events or anything? Uh, yes. Uh, we just launched, uh, Alex and I just launched the page for tickets for our upcoming masterclass in May. So those are on the Strategizer website. Um, my partner closely with Strategizer and, and wrote the Testing Business Ideas book with them. It's a three-day masterclass. Uh, it, it's almost like a virtual conference. It's pretty insane. We have live music. Um, but, but it's a great way to meet other people that are interested in these topics. And we go a little bit behind the scenes with regards to how does this work beyond the book. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Testing Business Ideas Masterclass. If you just even Google it, it'll probably come up and those tickets are on sale now. All right. So we'll include a link to that too. And again, thank you, Matt. What if people want to get in touch with you? What's the best way? Should they just go to Precoil or? Uh, that and I'm active on uh, Twitter at David J. Bland. And believe it or not, I'm active on LinkedIn. <laughs> I've kind of made a name for myself making memes on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think my highest right now is 3.5 million views wow. on the post. So believe it or not, LinkedIn is like, I'm there more. And I never thought I would say this, but you can also find me. That's on your MySpace. In a way, yes. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I balance humoring people and educating them in short, like, content and it seems to be working. So um, yeah, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn as well at uh, David G. Planned on LinkedIn. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Always. Thanks for having me.